1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
1: Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family.
0: For more information, go to InBetween.org. That's im This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revived Thoughts.
1: Yet the death of our Lord Jesus did not remain merely a sacrifice of sweet savor, for we must always remember that it was the reconciliation of the world.
2: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered, Today's sermon, we are listening to a John Calvin going back to the 1500s. This sermon in particular was preached in Geneva, Switzerland.
0: Joel, this is our second sermon from John Calvin, and I have to say, I love this sermon. As soon as I read it, I knew that this sermon needed to be the sermon that came before Easter. Uh, sometimes as Christians, I think we hear the passion story and we hear about Jesus on the cross and it's easy to, and I know this sounds kind of wrong, but it's kind of to take it for granted to just, oh yeah, this is, okay, I know the gospel, I know the story. Now for me, I, I compare it to, you know, I know when the sun comes up, it's going to be a sunny day and you know, I know 24 hours are in a day. These things are really important. Obviously, if we had a 30 hour day, that'd be crazy, right? But the thing is, I take it for granted. It's just a fact of life. But the passion story should be more than that. It should be exciting. It should be something I don't get used to. But I've been a Christian for about, you know, 10 years or more. And I do, I do get a little where I'm like, yeah, hum mm-hmm. humdrum about it. This sermon just really hit me in a way I hadn't thought about it in a while. It It, it just came at me from new things. And it really made me appreciate calvin and just how much he must have studied and how much reading he must have done to be able to take this story i think i've heard many many times and just i i felt it in a different way than i had before and uh yeah i think hopefully that will be the feeling you get too as you hear the sermon
2: yeah john calvin uh as troy mentioned is someone that we we've already done an episode on previously this is the second episode from john calvin john calvin was one of our first episodes we did in that first 10 episodes, what we kind of refer to as the first season here at Revive Thoughts. Uh, On a side note, we just recorded a kind of behind-the-mic, Patreon-only podcast where Mm -hmm. we talked about what creating the first 10 episodes of Revived Thoughts with li- was like and the complete train wreck that it that it was trying to get these first 10 episodes recorded. This was one of the episodes that we had such a, a problem trying to make. If you're a Patreon, the, keep an eye out for that episode being posted on your Patreon feed. If, if you're not a Patreon and you're, uh, jump in and listen to the story. If you, I, I think
0: just the day, and I'm just going to leave I it like this, us. but just the day at the libraries and Many many libraries. We'll leave it there just for yeah. you to think about. But yeah, that's a little that's a little teaser right there.
2: So yeah, it was it was rough getting the initial John Calvin episode recorded. Uh, John Calvin, he's pretty pretty controversial figure, uh, and you know part of his controversy comes from the theology that is named after him, Calvinism. And other parts of his controversy comes from uh, the burning of Servetus. There's a lot to debate about his life, and we covered some of these things in that previous episode. But today we're going to focus on some other parts of his life that aren't talked about as much. So one
0: thing that stood out to me that just kind of, it just hit me when I was looking at his life this second time was how young Calvin was when this all started. Calvin was born in 1509. If you take at uh, what age Martin Luther nails the 95 Theses, you know, the big Reformation starting moment, he would have been eight or so years old. You know, if you see pictures of Calvin, you think of these men, you think of them as these really old men with beards and they're just kind of hunched over. But Calvin was a kid when the Reformation started. And, and Calvin was not really set on the path to be a part of the Reformation. And you can see, I think, how in the story, God pulls him into it
2: all in a really interesting way. Calvin's father Gerard Calvin was the secretary of a bishop in their hometown Neon and he was a successful businessman his father was they were middle class but in Europe during this time middle class was 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 doing good that was that was that was I mean the majority of people were in that lower class middle class meant you were able to send your kids to school which the vast majority of people weren't you know your kids were learning how to read which the mass of majority wasn't doing at that time. His father was also pretty strict, and Calvin grew up kind of shy, partially due to his dad being so tough on him. We think Calvin himself growing up would would talk about going out on these long walks and praying and and just being open with, with God and talking to God in that when he was young, the Roman Catholics would do these parades and processions, and Calvin during one of these parades was Uh, Allowed to carry a sword during one of these processions, and kind of his personality of his intelligence and his seriousness. At at some point, his father just seeing him marching with his sword in this parade, that switch kind of flicked in his dad's minds where he says, This kid would make a great priest. And so he sent him to school (laughs) to become a priest. I mean, that's pretty much how
0: it went. And we know that. Uh, the Catholic Church th- during this time, the early 1500s, they were uh, they were very corrupt. This was not the best time for the Probably church the at large. Actually, <laughs> honestly, yeah. And, uh, and if you've listened to our episode on Wycliffe or Jean Gerson or Martin Luther, we've talked about this era and just how corrupt things were. Another sign. That things weren't good was that kids could become ranked church members which i actually didn't know this until this episode that that was something or it would have been mentioned before but the cardinal of lorraine was made a cardinal at the age of four so just imagine you go to church and a four-year-old is up there in charge of everything and you can get a pretty good idea of how things are running for the church and how serious they're taking things just like that uh, calvin The chaplain of this little town called Gisane, quits, and he says, "Hey, I'm going to make you know, 12 year old John Calvin the new guy, the new chaplain. I'm going to appoint him to do my job." And even though he's only 12 years old, in May of 1521, he becomes the chaplain of that little town. They do a ceremony, they cut his hair short, and they say some words, and that's pretty much it. He's now able to be a priest. He can give out holy orders. He can give out sacraments. Um, it's really crazy, but there was actually something interesting from this. and, And I read a book that was a biography on him from 1799, and it basically said, if you think about it, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's palace, almost like he was raised in the belly of the beast kind of a thing. And that gave him insight into how Egypt was run, and it kind of made him the perfect guy to break them out of Egypt in the same way. Calvin grew up in the priesthood. I mean, he was twelve years old. He was running his first, you know, chaplain job. Um, his dad worked for the bishop. He was he was in the parades. He was right there in the heart of Roman Catholicism. And because of his knowledge and his his time growing up there, he almost is like the perfect person to
2: explain why it's wrong. He has so much insight into how it all works. There was a plague that broke out in his hometown, Neon. There, and Gerard was deeply worried that his son Calvin uh, would die. Hundreds were fleeing the city, and the people that were dying the most were priests. Uh, You know, at the time of this recording, the the country's in this crisis, this COVID nineteen crisis, and we think of these doctors and nurses being on the front lines and fighting that disease at its at its source. And you know, obviously, we have the utmost respect for those people fighting that on the front line. But kind of back in this era. The priest kind of played that role. They were the people that were in people's houses. They were comforting people. They were uh, praying for people. And they typically would have some medical knowledge that they would be able to advise in that scenario as well. But his father didn't want him in neon because, because of this disease going on. So he made arrangements for john calvin to go to paris to study without losing his allowance and that kind of just shows a little bit of how corrupt the church is that this uh this priest was able to go to a different city to study for several years and still be the town priest without the priest even being there like there was just a lot of facets to imagine
0: your pastor of your local church just He says, I'm going to go to seminary across the country. And then he just continues to take the pay for being the pastor of the church for,
2: I mean, several years. And I mean, again, we have to remember at this this time where he goes study, he's 14, maybe 15 years old. So he's not, he's not, we would still consider him to be a child, a teenager during this time. And this is the same time that that, again, that Reformation is sparking all across Europe. So we think of Calvin being this huge player in the Reformation, and he definitely was. But during the early spread of the reformation uh again he's probably about 14 15 years old at the time again he's studying in paris and i visited i was able to to see the notre dame uh recently and the idea that 500 years ago people were the church was executing people by burning them in front of that building it's very hard to try to visualize what that must have been like back in that day and from all we can tell like John Calvin was had no objections to this. Like he yeah. he was during this time fully on board with Catholicism uh and that lifehood of a priest in the Catholic Church. So he was very against the Protestant movement that was happening at the time. There was actually in about that that there was a bell on top of
0: that that every time a heretic would burn, they would ring the bell. So I mean, I just imagine he's at school or he's doing something. Oh, there's the bell. I wonder if they burned somebody today. You know what I mean? That's the, That would have been his relationship with the Reformation. And it's kind of a part of him that I think all of us have forgotten, or I, I certainly didn't think about it very much. He was given a church and started to preach. And this would probably have been the end of the story for John Calvin, uh, but two big things occurred. And his dad ends up being the one who changes everything. The first is, his dad decides, I don't want you to be a priest anymore, I want you to be a lawyer. Uh, No one knows for sure why that happened. There's two kind of big explanations. One is, according to the legend, the one that kind of gets passed down, is that he kind of got into trouble with the bishop at the time. He gets excommunicated, gets exiled, and there's evidence that this might've been what happened. And so he wanted his son out of that line of work because of how you know uh, sporadic it is, and he's upset with the church, maybe. The other side of it too is, though, he might've been looking at what was happening with the Reformation, could see the writing on the wall that the church was gonna have a big, uh, contentious time, and then looked over at lawyers and thought, you know, my son is very, very smart. Everyone thinks he's an intelligent guy. Lawyers make a lot of money. Maybe this is just a safer, better place for him to be. But either way, he sends him out to law school at around the age of 19. And, it, and, so, and, and we're not sure when this next part happens, but the next part that really changes uh, Calvin's life and it has to do with his dad is his dad dies. Either at 19 or 23, somewhere between those years, uh, sources varied, he dies. And this is important because I think up until now, you just see anything, calvin's dad tells him to do he does it but after he dies he now no longer has anyone guiding him anymore and i think that helps him start to go okay what do i really believe in life and i think as he's doing that among everything else and he no longer has his dad telling him what to do he starts to just you know walk away from the catholic church at this part
2: yeah he went back to paris and i mean he was he was incredibly talented and incredibly intelligent. The college that he went to in Paris, the College of Montagu, I believe it's pronounced, uh, gave him a full-ride doctorate and his tutors would actually ask him to deliver lectures in class because he was fully capable and even sometimes better equipped to give lectures than the professors themselves were. So very well respected, very well liked, and during this time one of his relatives gave him a Bible that was translated and he started going through and reading it and he would compare it to the things that the Catholic Church was teaching at that time. And he realized that the Catholic Church was teaching a a lot of things that were not from the Bible, did not come from the Bible. And this was something that he wrestled with in his own conscience to the point where he stepped away from the church. He stepped away from being a priest, from receiving the allowance that the priesthood gave him. And this was, again, after 10 years of priesthood. So he was he was in the system as much as anyone could be. Uh, so to step away from that was a pretty big deal. Well, it's funny
0: to me that he it took him 10 years. After being a priest for 10 years, someone finally gives him a Bible. I'm like, what was he... And he was doing sermons and stuff. What was he preaching and talking and teaching about at that point if he didn't even know what the Bible said? So really strange stuff. As he, As Joel said, as he began to read the scriptures more and more, he becomes convinced that the Catholic Church is wrong. He grew very zealous and passionate about the Word of God. And it's interesting, too, something else changed. His personality changes. He went from this kind of almost monk-like, quiet kid who spends all this time by himself to a man that was making friends. He's becoming well known. He's speaking to crowds. He's bold about what he believes. And it was like, it was like who he was has is being reshaped almost by the Scripture. And the more he reads the Bible, he, he the more he becomes a John Calvin that we know him to be in history. This very passionate, fiery preacher. And eventually this man ends up having to flee Paris under the threat of persecution. He will eventually end up in Geneva. At the age of 26, he published, again, 26, very young. He published the famous book, Institutes of the Christian Religion. And from there, he goes on into history to be one of the most famous theologians, whether you disagree with him or agree with him of all time. Uh, but you can see how at the, age at the age of 26, I think that's very young on the one hand, but if you listen to all the things that he went through even before then, you go, wow, he's already lived a lot of life at that point. In this sermon this guy who once lived in the heart of the catholic church and who was seen as a just a genius at his age tells us about the death of, of the christ on the cross and this same story that we've heard over and over this is actually just sermon seven in an eight-part series he did but i think you'll you'll walk away looking at the passion of christ with newfound love and gratefulness just as i did
1: Hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calls for Elijah. And one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. Matthew, chapter 27, verses 45 to 54. When we consider the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, all men have to be humbled. And there will be found in men only poverty and shame in order that God may pour out upon them the treasures of his mercy. For he has no other consideration to provide for us except when he sees that we are in despair. God doesn't show us here how he extends his hand to those who seem to be worthy of it or who have some merit in them, or maybe who were respectable and in general reputation among men. But when he draws from the depths of hell poor damned souls, and when he shows himself to be pitiful toward those on whom all hope of life had disappeared, that is where his goodness shines. That is also what gives us entrance into salvation. For hypocrites, although they profess to be restrained by the grace of God, close the door against themselves by their arrogance. For they are so inflated with pride that they cannot change themselves for our Lord Jesus Christ. So we may be very certain that Jesus Christ calls to himself poor sinners and that he extends his arms to receive them. For if we are not sure of this, we will never be able to take courage and come to him. But when we are persuaded, that it is those who are the most miserable that he addresses, provided they recognize themselves as such, and they humble themselves and render themselves blameworthy, as they are, before the judgment of God, that is how we will be rescued. That is how we have easy access to share in the righteousness which is offered to us. This is the way we obtain grace and favor before God. It is said, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness. During which time it is said that there was darkness over all the land that is in Judea. For the eclipse was not through all the world. In fact, that would have obscured the miracle which God wished to show. Because they might then have attributed this eclipse to the order of nature. But behold, the country of Judea, which is covered by darkness. And at what hour? about three hours after 12 p.m., when the sun was nowhere near setting. But outside natural cause, darkness caused fright and astonishment to all. Many consider that this was done as a sign of God's disgust, as though God wished to call the Pharisees to account, so that they might feel the enormous crime that they had committed. If we as humans hate murder, how much more deplorable is the murder of the Son of God to God. Yet the death of our Lord Jesus did not remain merely a sacrifice of sweet savor, for we must always remember that it was the reconciliation of the world. Darkness came in order that the sun could give testimony to the divine and heavenly majesty of our Lord Jesus. For that moment he was lowered and rendered contemptible before men, emptied of everything, as Paul says. Yet the sun shows that it does him homage and keeps it hidden. God, to render the wicked all the more inexcusable, willed that Jesus Christ in his death be declared sovereign king of all creation. That this triumph of which Paul speaks in the second chapter of Colossians began already when he says that Jesus Christ triumphed in the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He tore up the warrant which was against us and acquitted us before God. By this Satan was conquered, and it can be shown by the eclipse. We are enlightened today by the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. For how is it that the gospel shows us the way to salvation? How are we enlightened to come to God unless the Son of God is presented to us with the fruit and power of his death? Indeed, Jesus Christ is then the Son of Righteousness, because he acquired for us life by dying. But his accusers have been deprived of such a benefit, since by their malice they had tried to extinguish and abolish everything that could give them hope. For it was entirely in the person of the mediator, the same one they tried to destroy by their malice and ingratitude. It was quite right then, that they were completely destitute of all light of salvation, in order that the wrath of God declared itself in a visible manner upon them. It follows that our Lord cried out, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew and Mark recite in the Aramaic tongue the words of our Lord, which came from Psalm 22. Then we must hold it, as a conclusive fact that our Lord Jesus, being brought into such extremity and anguish, cried with a loud voice, Yes, like those who are tormented to their limits. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, we have said above that it would be a cold statement from the history of his death if we would not consider the obedience which he rendered to God as Father. This is the principal thing we have to consider when we need to be assured of our salvation. It is that if we have committed many faults and rebellions and iniquities against God, all of it will be buried. For our Lord Jesus, by his obedience, has justified us and rendered us acceptable to God his Father. Now this obedience is shown in that Jesus Christ, knowing that it would be hard and terrible, obeyed it to the end. For if he had not experienced difficulty or conflict, it would not have been obedience. But though our Lord Jesus by nature held death and horror, and it was a terrible thing to be found before the judgment seat of God, in the name of all poor sinners he did not fail to humble himself to such condemnation for our sakes. We see in him a perfect obedience, and in that we have a good cause to glorify him. As says the apostle in the epistle to the Hebrews, our Lord Jesus was heard in that he feared. Hebrews chapter five verse seven. But he had to sustain what was so hard and burdensome and entirely contrary to all human affection. It was necessary that God his Father so trained him in order that his obedience might be known. Hebrews chapter five verse eight. We see the apostle who says particularly that our Lord Jesus had to be shaken with fear. For without that, we would not know what this sacrifice by which we have been reconciled is worth. In fact, St. Peter also shows that our Lord Jesus suffered not only in his body, but in his soul when he says that he fought against the pains of death. It is true that Scripture will often say that we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and that He offered His body as a sacrifice. That is also why it is said that His flesh is to us meat and His blood is to us spiritual drink. But that is said out of regard to our simpleness. Because we are gross, the Holy Spirit brings us back to what is visible in the death of Jesus Christ in order that we may have a completely certain pledge of our salvation. Although he had to sustain great and extreme terrors, yet he put our salvation above every other consideration. This is what we have to observe in this passage. That is, that the Son of God not only endured in his body such a cruel death, but that he was touched to the heart, having to sustain horrible assaults as if God had abandoned him. For he also sustained our cause, and he had to experience what condemnation there was upon poor sinners. By our sins we are alienated from God, and he must withdraw himself from us. We must know that he has rejected us. That is the proper thing for sinners. It is certain that Jesus Christ has never been rejected by God as Father. Nevertheless, he had to sustain these sorrows, and he had to fight valiantly to repulse them, in order that today the fruit of the victory may come back to us. So we have to remember that when our Lord Jesus was put into such an extreme circumstance as if God his Father had cut off from him all hope of life, it is as if he was us and he is sustaining the curse of our sins. For where is our joy unless we are made alive by the grace of God? He is the fountain of life, and of everything good, and our sins put a large distance between him and us. Jesus Christ then had to experience this. Let us consider now what someone might say. Is it possible that Jesus Christ experienced such terrors, since there is in him only complete perfection? For it seems that it takes away from the faith which he must have had, and from everything that we ought to believe of him. Now the answer to that is very easy, for when he was tempted by Satan, it was certain that he had to have this apprehension that he was actually on top of a tower. He was subject to such an illusion according to his human nature. However, that took nothing away from his divine power. Rather, we have occasion to magnify his goodness toward us, as he was willing so to lower himself for our salvation." Now it is said that he cried, My God, why have you forsaken me? How could one who was God have such apprehension? No, no. But when he suffered his deity, had to give place to his death and passion, which he had to endure. That, then, is the power of our Lord Jesus, which was kept, as it were, hidden for a time until he had accomplished all that was required for our redemption. This feeling of terror in no way detracts from the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, for inasmuch as he was man, he had all his confidence in God. It was then the true pattern of a true, perfect, and complete confidence. It is said now that he was in such anguish that he seemed to be forsaken by God as Father. However, his faith was always perfect, was neither beaten down nor shaken in any manner. How then does he say, Why have you forsaken me? It is by natural apprehension. Behold then our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to the weakness of his flesh, is, as it were, abandoned by God, and yet he does not cease to confide in him, as we see two parts in these words which are superficially contrary, and yet it all agrees very well, when he says, My God, my God, and he repeats the word in such a way, by that, He shows the constancy of his faith. He does not say, Where is God? How could he leave me? But he addresses himself to him. He must, then, be entirely persuaded and assured that he will always find favorable access toward God as Father. Behold a certain and infallible testimony of the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. When in the midst of such extreme anguish where he was, he does not cease to call God his Father and not in pretense, but because he was assured that he would find him reciprocal in calling upon him. Behold, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet he repeats the words, because the fight is difficult, as if he must defy all the temptations which Satan prepared for him, and he seeks confirmation of faith that he might always persist in calling upon God. Now he said further, Why have you forsaken me? Of course, that was according to what he could conceive of as a man, for he had to enter into that experience, but not to be conquered by it. For St. Peter says it was impossible that he should be held by the pains of death. Acts chapter two, verse twenty-four. That is, that he be seized like a poor man who altogether gives way and is crushed. It was impossible, says St. Peter, and so the victory was in the midst of the fight." And that is to glorify all the more our Lord Jesus Christ. David had experienced this partially. For it is certain that in the midst of his afflictions, however, great they were, he persisted to call upon God, hoping in him. But since he was a frail man, his faith was very often shaken, as he confesses. But in our Lord Jesus, there was a special consideration that he had all his passions well controlled because of the integrity that was in him and there was in him no natural corruption. As sometimes it happens to us that our pains will proceed from a good cause. We may have good reason for our fear and our anxieties, but all the same, there will always be vice mixed in it since corruption is in all our passions. But in our Lord Jesus, there was nothing trouble or disorder. He was not so seized with anguish. He always had his hope fixed rightly on God. He called only upon him and remained firm and constant in knowing well that he would be Savior even to the end. It is said, some of those who were near him mocked him. He who calls Elijah, let us see if Elijah will come to help him. There is no doubt that this blasphemy was pronounced by none other than the priests who were trained in the law. And were they confused by what Jesus said? Not at all. For the prophet whom they called Elijah is not named Eli. The name then had not confused them. For there is no doubt implied seeing that the word Elijah is pronounced entirely different from the word Eli, that is, my God that could not cause any ambiguity. It is then by certain malice and impudence that the reproach that he calls Elijah was put upon our Lord Jesus Christ. But if we find that strange, can we find examples like it today? For one will see today the papists who turn away and deprave by their slanders what we teach. What we teach is drawn from the pure truth of God, and they knowingly blaspheme to render our doctrine odious to many ignorant people and people who do not hear what we preach every day. They deprave falsely what we say, and they take it entirely the wrong way in order to give plausibility to their lie and to entertain poor ignorant people with it. That is how the enemies of God, possessed by Satan, have shoved aside with malice the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today among the papists one sees the same thing, and not only is that perceived in the papacy, but even among us there are belligerents who will say that we wish to make believe that Jesus Christ was devoid of all hope when we see that he sustained the anguish of death, that he was cast into the depths inasmuch as he was there in our name and he sustained the burden of our sins but that in no way takes away from the constancy of his faith. And these rascals who make profession of the gospel never cease to knowingly blaspheme by which they show that they are worse than those of whom it is here spoken. Seeing then that the devil today sharpens the tongues of his agents, and that each one by such brutal impudence comes to release his venom against the purity of doctrine, let us not think it strange if our Lord Jesus was slandered. But may we bear patiently these blasphemies, praying to God, as it is said in the twelfth psalm, that he may destroy these villainous tongues, which are so full of villainy and of evil, and which tend to blaspheme his name and obscure his truth. Here the gospel writer records that there was there a vessel full of vinegar, and that they took a reed, a long branch, and at the end of it they attached a sponge to make it reach the mouth of our Lord Jesus. St. John speaks here more distinctly, for he says that Jesus Christ, knowing that all things were finished, said that he was thirsty, and he pronounced once again, It is done, all is fulfilled. This, then, is what we have to note here. When this drink was given to the Son of God, namely, that he did not ask to drink because he was thirsty, for he had refused it earlier. Why? For this drink was given in order to shorten one's life. Now our Lord Jesus wished in everything and by everything to wait for the hour of God his Father in patience and rest. That, then, is why he did not wish to hurry his death, but rendered himself peaceable and obedient, until all was fulfilled. Indeed, this, despite that, he had not yet given up the Spirit, and he was not raised from the dead." He means that until this hour he had shown a complete obedience, so that nothing now hindered him from giving his soul to God his Father. This, then, is how we must take this passage. It is that our Lord Jesus declared that nothing more was lacking for our redemption except to depart from the world, which he was ready and prepared to do, and to surrender his soul to God seeing that he had acquitted himself of his whole duty as mediator, and that he had done all that was required to appease the wrath of God toward us, and that the satisfaction for our sins was accomplished, he was willing to ask for this drink. Now we have here a very noteworthy and excellent sentence, when it is said, All is fulfilled. For he intends that by his death we have All that we need to have access to God and to obtain grace from Him. Not that His resurrection should be excluded by that, but it is as if He said that He has performed His office faithfully, and that He has not come to be a partial Savior, but that He had omitted nothing according to the will of God His Father. Since that is so, we are instructed to fully give our confidence to our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that all parts of our salvation are fulfilled in what he did and endured for our sakes. That is also why his death is called a perpetual sacrifice, by which the believers and elect of God are sanctified. Do we wish, then, to have certainty that God is Father to us? Do we wish to have liberty to call upon him? Do we wish to have Rest in our consciences? Do we wish to be made more fully certain that we are held to be righteous in order to be acceptable to God? Let us abide in Jesus Christ and not wander here or there, and let us recognize that He is where all perfection rests. Those who wish for other ways and who look from one side to the other to supply what we must be lacking in the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ renounce fully the power of which we are now speaking. They tread underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ, for they dishonor it. All is fulfilled. What follows then, that we may know that there is not a single particle of virtue or merit in us unless we apply ourselves to this fountain? That then is how our faith ought to be set on our Lord Jesus Christ. Besides, we know above all that when he was offered as a sacrifice, it was to absolve us forever and to sanctify us perpetually, as Scripture says. May we then have no other sacrifice than this one. For we deprive ourselves of him and of the fruit of his death and passion when we seek other sacrifice than that which he offered in his person. That is what we have to remember. Now it is said, once again, he cried with a loud voice and gave up the spirit. And this cry was, I give back my soul or my spirit into your hands. We see how our Lord Jesus Christ so fought against the pains of death that from then on he was conqueror over it and he could gain his triumphs as having surmounted what was most difficult. And this pertains to us, that is, we must apply it to our own use, for we are assured Not only that the Son of God fought for us, but that the victory which he acquired for us belongs to us. That today we should not be frightened by death, knowing that the curse of God, which was terrible to us, is abolished. Death, instead of being able to wound us like a fatal plague, serves us as medicine to give us passage into life. So now he takes the prayer made by David in the 31st Psalm. I commend to you my spirit. Psalm 31 verse 5. It is true that David said this while in the midst of dangers, as if he said, Lord, hold me in your protection, for my soul is between my hands. It is there shaking, for I see myself exposed to all hazards. My life is hanging from a thread. It won't remain unless you take me into your care. That is how David, by his prayer, constituted God as his protector. For the guard that God keeps over us is that being withdrawn from this world, we are hidden under his wings to rejoice in his presence, as St. Paul speaks of it in Second Corinthians. And our Lord Jesus also pronounces this prayer and declares that he dies peacefully, having conquered the fight which he had to have to sustain us, and achieves his triumphs in our name, and to our profit and salvation. He fully declares by this same means that God is his Savior and that he keeps his soul as a safe trust, for that is what this request that he makes of him implies when he says, My God, you are the guardian of my soul even after death. When our Lord Jesus speaks so, it is as if he assured us all that we cannot fail in committing ourselves to our god now especially we have to note that jesus christ saying my god i commend to you my spirit acquired the privilege which is attributed to him by saint stephen in Acts 7. it is that he was made guardian of all our souls for how is it that saint stephen speaks in his death lord jesus i commend to you my spirit Acts 7 verse 59 this then is how Saint Stephen shows the fruit of this request which was made by Jesus Christ namely that now we can address ourselves to him and we should do it he declares that since he was given to us as shepherd by God his father we have no doubt to be peaceable both in life and in death knowing all will profit us and we will be turned to our advantage as St. Paul says, having Jesus Christ, he will find gain in everything, that he will no longer lack anything in either life or death, for all will be useful to him. Philippians 1, verses 20 to 24. So then, let us learn now, when we are besieged by death, that Jesus Christ has taken away the sting which might prick us fatally in the heart. Death will no longer be harmful to us. When our Lord Jesus gave his soul to God his Father, it was not only to be preserved in his person, but also to acquire this privilege which he preserved for us by virtue of this request. There is still this triumph of which we have made mention, which already profits us, for our Lord Jesus shows how precious his death is when he so confidently departs to God his Father, to lead us to him and to show us the way to him. But the main thing is that we may know that the fruit of it comes back to us, for he tore up the warrant which was against us. He acquired for us full satisfaction for our sins, so that we can appear before God his Father in such a way that even death will no longer do us evil or any harm. Although we still see in us many things which might be shocking, and we experience our poverty and misery, yet let us not cease to glory in him who lowered himself for us in order to raise us with him. In fact, although on man's side there is only complete shame, yet when Jesus Christ was hanged there on the cross already, God wished at that time by the mouth of Pilate that he'd be declared king. So although the kingdom of our Lord Jesus is vilified before the world, we may not cease to hold it as the foundation of all our glory. We know that being in shame under his leading, we still have much to rejoice since our condition will always be blessed because all the miseries, afflictions, and sufferings which we endure are more honorable and precious before God than are all the scepters, all the pomp and things considered honorable. That is how we must come to our Lord Jesus Christ, cling in such a way to him that we may know that the riches which he brings to us are worth. And above all, when he leads us by his gospel, may we reject all the conveniences and comforts of this world. Indeed, may we hold them in detestation when they would turn us aside from the good way. On our part, Let us not be as reeds shaking with every wind, but let us be founded in him, and may we call upon God. In life and in death may the victory be given to us in which he has already triumphed, and while we are still here below, may we give him the honor of recognizing that it is he who sustains us. This is what he will do when we really have our refuge in him. He will do it, I say, not in a common manner, but miraculously, for when we are cast down to the very bottom of the abyss of death, it is his duty to withdraw us from it and to lead us to the heavenly inheritance which he has so dearly acquired for us. Now we will bow in humble reverence before the majesty of our God.
0: I love the part where Calvin kind of explains what what Jesus means by Eli, Eli, Lama, Lama Sbechthoni, and I know I said that wrong, but we'll focus more on the fact that when he says Eli, Eli, I I always wondered why that part was in a different language, and in different Gospels, it puts Eli, Eli, it's like, this is, you know, Aramaic for... Whatever, And I always was like, why does that put that there? But then it makes sense when you think about it. The Pharisees go, oh, he's calling for Elijah. And I love how Calvin goes, they know he's not calling for Elijah. Elijah is a full name and Eli is a half name. And so that's clearly not what he's doing. But even at that point where the sun is turning black, the Pharisees are still not taking Jesus seriously. Oh, maybe he's calling for Elijah. Let's wait and see if Elijah shows up. And they kind of have like a little, it's almost like they're teasing him, having a little laugh over it. And then you compare that to the Roman guard who sees the sun go black and sees Jesus dying on the cross. And he goes, you know, we really did crucify the son of God. And that, that comparison between these two groups of people, one taking Jesus seriously and one not, it really got to me the way he did that was just excellent. And this That was just one of many moments where I thought, my goodness, this is one of the best sermons on the passion of Christ I think I've ever heard. And it really touched me and made me rethink the story and rethink just how well do I know that story? Because I think I do, but actually there's lots of layers to it that I haven't thought about.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of revived thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Sean Tomlin. Thanks Sean for reading this episode. Sean is a host over at the guys with Bibles podcast and he had us on for an episode earlier. Go check out the guys with Bibles podcast uh, and you can hear uh, Troy do an interview on that show.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. If you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy Revive Thoughts and think to yourself, I would I would enjoy a little more content, though. Uh, we have a lot of other things that we are doing as a part of Patreon, and you can get access to more content. There's a whole list of benefits you can get from Patreon. Joel,
2: tell us what we get for $3 a month. Yeah, you can get this. For three dollars a month, getting into that Patreon club, you get an ad-free feed. You'll get a link for an ad-free feed, so you don't have to listen to the ads that run pre-roll on this channel. You also get a bookmark that's signed by Troy and I. A little personalized message on there, we'll mail to you. Well, you you get a history deep dive episode where we dive into kind of a really well-researched portion of church history that we talk about. Those are a lot of fun to put together and to make. They take a lot of research, but we love doing them. Uh, And also some behind-the-scenes show where we talk about kind of the funnier aspects of putting the show together. We can interact with the patrons a little bit on that end, and it's kind of more of a casual kind of, you get to see a little bit of Troy and I's personalities come through as we can more casually talk about different aspects of the show that really aren't you don't fit the format of the proper show in general but we'd love to see you over on patreon come over for only three dollars a month you can get access to all that and we also are working for even more patreon benefits coming down the line as well absolutely so if you're excited and enjoying revive thoughts we have more stuff coming not only for the
0: patreons but for everyone in the future so be excited this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts This episode is brought to you by The In-Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
1: On The In-Between Podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world,
0: ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse,
2: how to not hate your in-laws,
0: ways to save money for your next vacation,
2: and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships.
0: Join us, Daniel
2: and Christina M,
0: as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family.